Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the BSF Lecture Talks on the Gospel of John. I'm Abraham Lee, the teaching leader for the San Francisco region. And today we are studying Lesson 5. Lesson 5, which looks at John chapter 4, where Jesus meets a Samaritan woman at the well of Sychar. By the way, I have one announcement for you today, and that is that uh, BSF has just let us know what the uh, annual cost for the headquarters is in providing BSF materials and training uh, nationwide. And they did let us know that uh, they are seeing a little bit of a shortfall for their budget. So if you have some giving that you'd like to do to support the work and ministry of BSF as they expand their study materials out into more languages and throughout the world, uh, please consider giving through your mybsf.com account, I'm sorry, .org account link. There you'll find a link at the very top right-hand corner where you can uh, click through it and send in a contribution to help them. It costs about $130 a year to support each individual member who is studying with us. All right, now let's get back to the study. So it says quite clearly here that for some reason Jesus had to go through Samaria Question three helps us with a review of why Jews would have avoided this route on their way to the fertile agricultural center of Galilee. So if you were with us last season in our study of the Old Testament prophets, we learned that the northern kingdom of Israel openly accepted the cultural ways and idol worship of all kinds worshipped by the nations around them. So during the Assyrian conquest, the king of Assyria also resettled many foreign peoples into Israel to replace the people who lived there. Therefore, over time, they began to lose their cultural heritage to God. Their worship practices became more confusing mixture of pagan ideas and beliefs. And it became just a, a hodgepodge where there was confusion due to the lack of direction. Religion devolves, of course, when this happens to the most basic set of ideals that makes us feel good and doesn't get in the way of how we want to live our lives. And of course, it was much more insidious than this back in those days when this was taking place. Because uh, the Bible keeps saying that king after king, leader after leader, continue to mislead the people into the evil and wicked practices of the nations around them in the spirit of their king Jeroboam, the first king of the northern empire. And so, yeah, this state of um, confusion that they were under. Religion was becoming stale, unhelpful. Uh, they didn't have a, a center of authority or power uh, to give it legitimacy of any kind. People were thinking their own things, but and they did, however, cling to the scriptures as the Jews had it, but they were largely left without any teachers to guide them on their spiritual journeys in their spiritual walk. So it is into this place Jesus determined to go. And he and his foreknowledge and plan had a preordained meeting he wanted to have with a person that we would not typically expect or think to be an ideal candidate to spark the evangelization of an entire city. Uh, that's just like many of us, right? <clears throat> it's definitely my story. You know, Jesus found me as a young boy living in a ghetto, <clears throat> a government ghetto housing project where Really, no one from within our own neighborhood community could tell me or anyone else about Jesus. So God sent two very young Sunday school teachers uh, who went door-to-door -door visitation on a Saturday to invite us to their church, which was quite far away in a different part of town here in the city. And when we said we had no way to get there, the lady uh, who was there, two of ladies, uh, one of them said she would come and drive us. <laughs> she would be her, our carpool. She would take four rambunctious boys to church every week. 
if um, my mom helped get us ready. And um, but then when she came, uh, she was our alarm clock so that we got up and uh, started to get washed while she waited in the car for 30 minutes. <laughs> but that started a ministry um, that gradually grew into an inner city children's ministry in our neighborhood that gave many street kids the opportunity to learn about God's love in Christ. And I was a big benefactor from that. God comes to us and he makes a way through barriers that we have to reach us and speak to us in our need where we are at. And I wish you all could have seen what I was at the time. Our neighborhood was rough. I had to learn to fight and uh, my mouth was pretty filthy back then. Got into all kinds of trouble. My hair was had grown down all the way to my shoulders and I couldn't even read well in the fourth grade because um, in that neighborhood, the children were so rowdy at school and had a difficult time learning. The teachers spent all of their time giving us those non-academic cut-and-paste work to calm us down. So we were playing for most of the day, not really learning to do any academic work. And Jesus found me in that place and changed my life. And it changed 180 degrees. So that's my testimony of where he comes to meet us, even when we don't think anyone should be coming into where we are. Uh, as difficult a place as we may be living. Here's a map of the region where this woman in Samaria, Samaria is living. Uh, um, not the exact location, but we know that the mountain she's talking about is Mount Gerizim, and that's located approximately where that red dot is. So we don't know where Sychar is located exactly, but we do know that the mountain they worshipped is called Mount Gerizim, and the woman was uh, speaking about this in her discussion and talk with Jesus. So look at the map of the terrain here. Uh, it's a Google map. I hope you can appreciate what's going on here. Um, the Jews typically, when they went from Jerusalem to Galilee, they went through the Jordan Valley, through where the river flowed, uh, and it became a, actually a major highway to Galilee. So it was flat, and there, that way was, um, of course, the way of the refreshing river. There were markets, villages along the way. It was a well-worn highway that many people frequently used in their journeys north and south. So this main artery, this highway on the Jordan was, well, you know, where John the Baptist was preaching and teaching the people and baptizing. He went to where people were bustling and traveling from all walks of life. Imagine travelers finding a prophet who they didn't expect to see kind of at a bus stop on their way to uh, the Galilee or down to the Jerusalem. They didn't expect to be meeting uh, a, a prophetic teacher who spoke to them about the Messiah, and the baptism of repentance. Now imagine you meeting someone like this, John the Baptist at SFO, or the Greyhound bus station here, or the Moscone Center. Uh, John the Baptist was conducting ministry among people who were on a journey and searching. But of course, he had something more profound to give them than anything they had expected. It was in this environment Jesus decided today he wasn't going to take this route the well-worn path up to Galilee. He was going to go a different way that people avoided, and for good reason. They didn't like to normally go this path, because um, look at the map here. Now think about going through this hilly country. See the terrain? Uh, that's pretty some pretty high mountains. I actually went through parts of that area, and it's very hilly, which means there is no direct straight path. Your path will likely be more windy, and dangerous because of bandits. And then without any other familiar people that could travel with you, of course, 
there won't be any markets and you know their equivalent of food trucks along the way, uh, no easy access to water, uh, and also um, just it's going to take longer, right? It's just going to take longer because you're going through a circuitous path, and it's just hot. But there is nowhere Jesus will not go to meet the ones he has appointed to meet. When people ask about how people who've never heard about Jesus in far-off lands know him, you know, I take great comfort in knowing that Jesus makes a way to find those people like he did me, and like he does here, looking to meet a woman who was not only living in a mountainous, inhospitable region, but was living in the inhospitable regions of her social and spiritual life. We're going to find out this woman was a woman in hiding for good reason. But let me just share with you first the outline for lesson five here. So this outline, we're covering John chapter 4, 1 through 30. The doctrine for this lesson is redemption of God, the redemption of God. And the attribute that we're looking at is the impartiality of God. God comes to all, uh, whether they be very well-to-do people like Nicodemus or people who are just don't even know their left hand from their right, like maybe this woman and like myself. So big idea. The big idea to take away is satisfaction in Jesus, how to achieve and to receive the great peace, the shalom, and the redemptive uh, life that he gives us in Jesus. And the aim is to cause the audience to learn that Jesus can satisfy humanity's deepest longings. Now, the divi- there are two divisions here. One is... Um, is seeking the dissatisfied, Jesus seeking the dissatisfied and thirsty. And we find that um, in verse 1 through 3, he departs with a purpose. And then verse 4 to 6, he has a destination with a plan. The principle that we learn is Jesus knows what we truly need. He knows where we are and meets us there. The second division is saving the dissatisfied and thirsty. And those are broken up into three parts. Verse 7 to 15, we learn Jesus gives us life. Jesus gives us life. Verse 16 to 24, Jesus gives us access to the Father. Jesus gives us access to the Father God. In verse 25 to 26, Jesus gives us himself. He is the promised Messiah, God's anointed one, God's deliverer. In Latin, Messiah is Christ. That's where we get the word Christ. And the principle here is that Jesus fills humanity's deepest needs and fulfills all God's promises to us, all and every single one of them. And that's all we need. That's all we need in understanding our great salvation, to understand the great promises of God to us, made through the prophets and revealed in Christ Jesus. And we'll talk more about that as we go on here. So here, back to the study, we get several indications that there's something unusual about this woman. She comes to draw water in the heat of the day. So verse 6 says about the sixth hour of the day, which is noon, because they're now cutting off from 6 a.m., which is the daylight hours of the Jewish day. The Jewish day starts actually the night before from 6 p.m. and goes to 6 a.m. and then from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. So the sixth hour from 6 a.m. is noon. Back then in ancient times, most people came to the well in the cool early morning after they got up to start their day. Water was essential to getting started in the day, getting a fresh drink of water, of course, like we do today, preparing food, getting washed. Water was essential. But this woman waited until noon when everyone would have gone home and there was nobody around. Why? Why would she be avoiding people? 
Well, we get some hints. It appears she is annoyed to see that there's someone sitting here by the well at the sixth hour when she was expecting to be alone. Jesus, knowing how a gaggle of men, you know, he has his disciples with him. Jesus, knowing how they might be intimidating for her, he sends them away to buy food in the town so that he has some time and space to be alone with the Samaritan woman. And I think about this and think about how Jesus comes to us knowing how to approach us in the middle of our hard and dark lives and the sensitivities that we hold, how gracious he is, how he knows how to open us up and how he knows to speak to us. As God always does, he starts speaking to us in questions, very simple questions that seem very innocent and innocuous at first, but is the great shovel of God, I call it the shovel of God, that uncovers the root of our idolatries, our hang-ups, our fixations and addictions even, our wrong thinking and our biases, our ingrained beliefs in our own lies. You know, we, we grow up with a lot of lies. And it's not until we face trouble that we start to confront them. Well, we live in a world that is more willing to make us worldly people by the lies that it kind of rolls out and facilitates and indoctrinates us on. It's hard when the truth comes. It causes friction. Our faith grows weaker by a wrong, misdirected orientation to things we don't want to let go. And that's the truth. I'll repeat that. Our faith grows weaker by a wrong, misdirected orientation to things we don't want to let go. So what kinds of questions might Jesus be asking you today? What might he be uncovering in your life with a spiritual shovel that is blocking you to a fuller and deeper rich life with himself? So he asks her, will you give me a drink? That's that simple question. And it sets off, of course, a greater discussion she hadn't anticipated. And Jesus, of course, asks us that too. Will you give me a drink? What do you have to give to drink? So in question four, uh, it asks about listing the differences and similarities between the Samaritan woman and Nicodemus, including their encounters with Jesus. Here's a Samaritan woman who is a direct contrast to Nicodemus in every way. The Apostle John shows us a spectrum now here with these two people of various people God is reaching to through Christ. Nicodemus, you can think of, you know, his stature. He's a Pharisee. He's educated in the scriptures. He, he's a member of the Sanhedrin, the ruling Jewish council. He would be very well-to-do, um, kind of in an elevated position in his society, uh, a person of authority, a person of great uh, influence. He would be, in our day, someone maybe graduated from the Ivy Leagues, trained to be an executive or a political leader of our day, someone people would think knows, knows it all and has it all. Uh, he would be lecturing people at the universities and on stage at maybe TED Talks and conferences and be paid thousands of dollars for his views on how the world works and how to be successful, how to make it rich, you know. But Nicodemus didn't really have the answers and he knew it. Contrast him with this woman who doesn't claim that she has all the answers, not, a, not in the slightest. Instead, we do know that she made a lot of mistakes, uh, one of which is that she has all kinds of relationships. Here, we don't even know her name. Not only did the woman reside in a lower position on the social stratum, she was a dishonorable Samaritan by that, um, having all these different husbands. And as we get to learn more about kind of the details of her life, she's a woman that's had um, previously five husbands. 
and that either to to very bad luck <laughs> i hope that they didn't all die on her although that's certainly a possibility she's been living with many different men and the most morally embarrassing part is that jesus says the man she's currently living with or shacked up with now isn't her husband so that gives us a clue that um, these husband types are people that she's meeting um, and living with for um, something else, some other reason. How could he have known about that? Probably from her position, she's befuddled. She's never met this man before. She's obviously not part of the town. Um, she's she, He's a Jew. You know, he would not, of course, be someone welcomed in this society. Well, it's no wonder she's estranged from society. Um, because she is morally embarrassed. She's a bit distant and cold and inhospitable when he asks for a drink. She is a person who doesn't want to meet others, of course, for fear of judging critical eyes, uh, right? You know, she knows she's living a life of disrepute. But God knows everything about us, and he knows that beyond the humiliation and the disrepute, there's been something that we've been looking for. We honestly were thinking that we would find happiness there by living in such a way. And he comes to us, Jesus comes to ask us about the water we're drinking, to quench that thirst in all of us that we think it, we could fill on our own, by our own means. I've had students uh, in the past who've told me if they only had a boyfriend or a girlfriend, their lives would be perfect. <laughs> and they were so convinced. Just having a boyfriend or girlfriend like everybody else, they would be so happy and life would be perfect. I've had young adults tell me if they only got married to the perfect person, their lives would be perfect. And there are people who say more money, a great job, more pay, better living environments, or just themselves even, a makeover, being taller, better looking, or having a better spouse. You know, people place all kinds of powers on having a better life and, and the ability to get happiness by attaining things and having better relationships. Uh, they see a promise in that. But Jesus here speaks to her, the Samaritan woman, about the ways in which she's been doing this with husbands, all the while trying to address her deepest need. He says to her, if you drink from this water, this well, you'll be thirsty again. You'll be thirsty again and again and again, and you'll have to keep coming back again and again. Everyone who drinks this water and I'm saying, um, and he's saying, of course, anyone who drinks from the things of the world, whoever drinks and partakes of the things that the world has to offer, they'll need to drink and drink, but it won't stop. The inevitable decline that we all face, whoever drinks the water I give him, however, he says, will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling to eternal life. So question 6-8 asks, what is the main difference between ordinary water and the water Jesus offers? Well, here's the difference. The main difference in the water she depended on and we depend on and the water Jesus gives is this. What we consume in this world will never satisfy forever. You know, our physical bodies will continue to hunger and continue to thirst and continue to desire, to lust. And there's a word we don't use often, lust. Yes, but we do lust. We will continue to crave. And as we get and search out and consume the things that we crave, it won't stop us from the inevitable decline and to decay. 
We will continue to age. We will continue to get sick, catch diseases, grow old, and eventually die. But the water of life Jesus is offering is once and for all water. It is his life. It is his very self. It is water welling up like a spring, overflowing and replenishing to eternal life in the kingdom of God, and that for ages to come into eternity. This body is for this place, and, and yet this place and this body is corrupted, and it will all decay. But the way into the life of God is to life into God's kingdom, and that's only possible by the life that Jesus is able to give alone. He alone is able to give us that water of life. So what is symbolized by the living water? Uh, we're presented with two verses here, John 6, 35, where Jesus declares, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. John 7, 37, 39 also says, On the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, He said in a loud voice, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Imagine anyone saying this kind of thing. I'm just stopping here. No religious leader ever spoke like this. No one, even alive, the greatest scientist, the greatest politician, no one, no great religious leader can say the things that Jesus is saying. But he says with authority, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have said, streams of living water will flow from within him. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not been given, since Jesus had not yet been glorified. So part C asks, what, for what things do people thirst? How has this type of thirst affected your life? And we're presented with Jeremiah 2.13. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. I love that verse, Jeremiah 2.13. Because it so aptly describes who we are. We're broken cisterns that cannot hold water. I was having a conversation with someone recently, and in our talk, we said, isn't it funny that our culture and our American lives can be perfectly summed up like shopping at Costco? <laughs> yes, shopping at Costco. You know, we go there without a real sense of purpose. We enter, and we uh, enjoy the sense that there's merchandise all kinds of things we couldn't even imagine from floor to ceiling abundance. And it makes us feel good. And we love the treat, cheap thrills like the $1.50 hot dog would drink. Although we know somewhere deep inside they're not good for us, but just it's cheap thrills that we go looking for like in life. And then we wander kind of aimlessly through the aisles, seeking uh, what new thing promises to make our lives better or to add to the overflow of junk in our garage. We're surrounded by similar busy, noisy people, other customers doing the same thing. And we just kind of flow with the crowd, going through the aisles, not really kind of having any objective, but looking and desiring and consuming. And we just follow them around the store in an implicit, empty fellowship, buying in mass quantities more than we will ever need. And then when friends come over, you know, they say, oh, you got that at Costco, right? <laughs> It's like this, um, the banality and the vanity of this kind of life is very much kind of resembling all of life that we live, even our spiritual selves. We go looking, consuming, and um, 
buying into cheap thrills without looking for that thing, the water and the bread of life that truly fulfills. Our lives are run by a world system that makes us brainless consumers, searching for a better life that only makes us more cluttered and empty and unfulfilled. Now contrast that with what Jesus is saying here. He wants to give us something greater. Jesus is confronting us with the problem that we all have and go about trying to fulfill. We know for a, a fact that the richest and most influential people of our overabundant times are all restless with a sense of with this deep sense of meaninglessness and purposelessness and emptiness, as busy as we are. You know, we just keep going and going and going and we're driven for things, but then at the end of our lives, we're tired and we don't know where all the time went. People marry thinking that being with a the person they love will bring about the greatest joy and contentment in their lives. But the thing with people is that we fall as quickly out of love as we fall quickly in love. And the person we thought we could not live without, we find in a year or two, can become the very person we despise, that we're annoyed by, that we just kind of shake our heads wondering, what was I thinking? Our hearts are fickle and selfish. As much as we would hate to live with such self-centered people, we are just as depraved in our hearts and no better than they. We all need God. He is the true and faithful one. He's the one that sticks with us to give us life in Jesus. So Jesus spoke directly to the heart of her main problem. Her attempt to fill the emptiness of her heart was with the husband. And we all have a hole we're trying to fill with worldly things when they were meant to be filled with the essential things. So in some ways, we all have husbands. We often dance around the main core issues of our lives because we're distracted by our hidden idols. Part 7b says, in what ways has Jesus led you to recognize your own most urgent need? Um, perhaps this woman thought a good husband would make her fulfilled and happy. There are famous celebrities who do the same thing. You know, once they were wealthy, once they become wealthy and popular, they think they will attract their best possible partner among all the other highly successful and beautiful people. But the celebrities' li lives come to some of the greatest tragedies that we've ever seen as uh, they show the highest divorce rates and the most dramatic relationship turmoils. The Samaritan woman had five husbands and now the sixth man in her life isn't even legally her husband. Husbands couldn't fill the hole in her soul. The fact is, whether you're a man or woman, we are all like the Samaritan woman. We are all this way. And we all have husbands, even men out there, yes, you. We've all thought we could fill our hearts with something like this woman did with her husbands. Jesus is teaching us here that the only one who can complete us and give us true life is the one who created us, Yeshua Christos, Jesus our Lord. She had six men in her life. Before she can go living with dozens of dozens of other men to come, Jesus puts a stop to it. He enters her life as her true husband, the seventh husband, who can truly fill her soul. Now, um, remember that number seven. Seven in the Bible is a perfect number symbolizing completion. She could have continued living for more and more husbands, but now after meeting Jesus, she could get her mind off of this rat race, <laughs> this husband race she's on, collecting husbands. He washes her life of shame and guilt and misplaced worship of idols, human idols to the worship of God, the true living God through Jesus. He teaches her that God seeks true worshipers. He says to her, you Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know for salvation 
is from the Jews, of course, because the Jews, God spoke through the Jews, the Moses and the prophets. Yet a time is coming, he says, and has now come when the true worshipers will seek the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. Now, this woman has some religious ideas that confuses her. She thinks that by being associated with Jacob and by being part of a legacy or a heritage or worshiping at a mountain that was uh, considered holy for worship in the past, that some of these things, these religious uh, rituals and relics and and, um, habits will somehow help her and guide her to God as she'd been seeking. And it's interesting that um, this mountain figures largely in idol worship. People love living by mountains. Um, you know, I, I, I go to uh, Yosemite and see some of these national parks where mountains like uh, and by Boulder or even in Estes Park, you just stand before a mountain and it just takes a breath away. Uh, and there's something definitely spiritual about mountains that seem to point to the heavens and touch God. And since ancient times, people went to mountains and or built towers, or even the Egyptians who lived in the flat plains of Egypt, who didn't have mountains to gaze at and worship, you know, they built their own substitutes in the pyramids as a way to create their own way um, into, supposedly, into the, the divine, into the presence of the divine by their own means. Of course, it doesn't happen this way. And of course, it doesn't occur to many of us who have tried that we're inherently unqualified to approach the divine. We're unqualified to approach the holy God on our own terms. The old ways of worship was a sign of a more perfect way. The hunger that we have is a sign of a hunger for the true way. The Bible speaks of the mountain of God that we can only approach by holy means. If we are not holy before it, we can die touching that mountain. And you read about that in the account of Moses and the Israelites. Mount Zion, however, is that great promise of God, the great mountain where the temple of God dwells. And scriptures tell us that Jesus is Mount Zion by whom all who would come to worship God can come. And he's the only way. Upon him is the city of God built and established, which we will study more about next season in the study of Revelations. So the woman wants to know how to worship. If it's not in this Mount Gerizim, she recognizes there is a limit to what we can know. And she's hungering to know, how can, what can I do in my situation? Uh, the woman invokes the promise of the Messiah. She says, you know, if the Messiah come, he will lead us into all, all things. He will explain it to us. When he comes, he will explain everything I wanted to know. At this point, the woman sees Jesus just as a prophet with powerful words. That intrigues her, but she recognizes a hope for God's promised deliverer is the only one that give give her definitive understanding by the authority that he has, not this prophet. She is thinking a prophet is good, but what do I know about this man? Who is who is he? Where is he from? I mean, I don't. I just met him at this well. How can I trust him? And she says, you know, uh, I know that Messiah is coming, and when he comes, he will explain everything to us. And that's when Jesus declared. I who speak to you am he. Now, there are times in the Bible, Jesus Jesus doesn't answer people who ask him this question, are you the Messiah, so directly. When they ask if he is the Christ or the Son of God, uh, they come, however, uh, with warped view of what those sacred terms mean. And so Jesus 
could not and would not verify and confirm them with a yes, because that would only uh, throw them into more, uh, only verify their false ideas and corrupted notions about the Messiah. This woman, however, stated in the attitude of hope, just this hope that she knew that the Messiah would make all things clear and plain. And this is the aspect of God's Messiah that is true, that is right, which Jesus gladly did confirm for her. He declares, I'm the Messiah you've been waiting for. Now, she is astonished by this. Um, And what's important to note here is that the typical Messiah the people in Israel were looking for at the time was the kind of um, Rambo or Terminator Messiah against the Roman Empire, a buff and strong gladiator type who would come and rescue them militarily. This woman was not looking for that at all. She believed what he said from what he was able to tell her about her life, and it astonished her. She met somebody who could tell her the intimate nature of her failed life, and she met one who said with definitive, astounding statements of fact about who God was and how he sought to be worshipped by his people. She believed and understood that he was the Messiah by his words, not by his appearance, and not by ingrained, preconceived notions of what the Messiah should look like or be. So this woman, it radically changes her life. Right a few minutes before, she was running away from people, hiding, and now, by the words of the truth, her life is transformed. Her life is radically transformed, and she takes 180 degrees about face, running to the town she once was inhibited by her guilt and her shame. She has now no reason to hide anymore. She has a solution for other people to proclaim that is not just for her, but for everyone. So after an encounter with Jesus, as in listening to his words of truth, she runs into the town and says, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah, the Christ? And they came out of the town and verse 39 says, many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. And they urged him to stay with them. And because of his words, many more became believers. It's interesting to note here also that Jesus could have performed great miracles and astonishing feats like he did in other places in Israel, but he didn't need them here. He merely spoke to them the words of life and of truth, and they believed, such that in verse 42 they said, the woman said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. All some people ever need, especially the ones who come to the truest faith, are not those who are looking for miracles and wondrous signs. They actually just listen to the words of God and believe. If you are a believer, let us remember our Jesus, who is our perfect husband, whose love is not fickle and capricious like ours, but who is the perfect husband who is faithful and true. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord. Thank you for our Lord Jesus, who is the perfect husband, the one who longs for us, who is our great shepherd, who shepherds our way and prepares for um, himself a people holy and sanctified, made perfect through his blood and by the sacrifice of his body, we are redeemed. Thank you, Lord, for the great promise that has been fulfilled to us through your great son, our Lord Jesus. May Yeshua, our Lord, be lifted up and praised always and evermore. And make us, Lord, a people for yourself, also like this woman, running into the people that are also hungering and thirsting for a word of life and truth. May we be prepared to share with the uh, 
with the passion and conviction of the thing that's happened to us in our transformation in Christ and with the joy and with the life, peace and gladness that we have may be a resounding testimony in this world so desperately needs your word right now. We thank you in Jesus' name.